some phone staring. We, I noticed there was phone staring, and I, I did the usual aunt mother thing, like, you're rotting your brain! Everyone, you should read a book, play a game, talk to each other! And that went as far as you imagine it went. Um, okay, so yeah, and which makes me think, you know, I waste most of my phone time playing words with friends, but I, I used to play Scrabble with Jean and Rita, whenever we got together, but somewhere along the way, we stopped doing it, right? And then I think, is this why their brains went downhill? Because I stopped playing Scrabble with them? Why didn't I keep playing Scrabble with them? So, um, maybe they would have lasted longer, except I became like a phone zombie. So anyways, <laughs> guilt, right? We all carry guilt around. And it waxes and wanes, and um, in my case, I usually manage to brush it aside pretty easily, except for when it all comes like in an avalanche. But, um, but I also feel a little guilty about that. Why don't I feel more guilty about my guilt, right? I ought to feel more guilty about it. There's that quote in Pride and Prejudice where Mr. Bennett says, you know, oh, I'll get over it, and sooner than I ought to, right? That's me. I'll get over it, and sooner than I ought to. Okay, so why do I dredge all this guilt up, now that we're all guilted up, and maybe, you, maybe you'd like to share something you feel guilty about this morning? Um, I bring it up because Matthew 14 begins with a guilty conscience, and that is the conscience of Herod. So I, you know, we ended our 2018 with lots and lots of parables, and now we kind of um, get into some more narrative of Jesus, Jesus' life. Um, so let me read this. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus, and he said to his servants. <gasps> This is John the Baptist. He's been raised from the dead. That is why these powers are at work in him. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because John said to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet, right? Herod would have loved to just get rid of John in that voice, but people liked it. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias, so his new stepdaughter, right, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod, so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Prompted by her mother, which shows she couldn't have been a teenager because she wouldn't have asked her mother what she wanted, but prompted by her mother, she said, give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. And the king was sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he commanded it to be given. He sent and had John beheaded in the prison, and his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. And his disciples came, John's disciples came, and took the body and buried it, and they went and told Jesus. Okay, so just a quick note, this is not the same Herod who killed all the baby boys when Jesus was born, right? This is, uh, that was Herod the Great, this is his son, so we can see that he has inherited his father's tendency to respond to circumstances with paranoia and with fear, right? Um, so John the Baptist irritated the powers that be by making moral pronouncements about them, and he got thrown in prison. And Herod, this Herod, Herod Antipas, had divorced his wife and taken his half-brother's ex-wife, half-brother's ex-wife, okay, Possibly while his brother was yet living. So, you know, there was like some family excitement there. You know how there was a little kerfuffle when Joe Biden's, what, his like daughter-in-law or married the son or the whatever, right? 
Um, but this is even more complicated, right? So, because the kid's not, the brother is not dead. Anyhow, so troubles with John the Baptist aside, this later caused a territorial war for Herod, which he lost. Herod had a tough time. So you have to feel a little bad for Herod. Um, if you put the story in chronological order, he, here's his rough patch. He gets together with his ex-sister-in-law, Herodias. Because, I mean, it's weird. You're also getting together with somebody who has, like, a version of your name, which is strange. Um, he gets together with Herodias. He feels guilty about it. Um, and clearly he feels guilty, or else he wouldn't have felt threatened. I mean, if John the Baptist went around saying, you know, he would have said, oh, shut up, right? But clearly he feels like, oh, maybe kind of squirmy about it because he's like, shut up, and I'm putting you in prison, right? So there's some guilt. Um, and then he just kind of wishes John would go away and disappear and cease to exist, but John also has his supporters, and Herod is also a politician, so he's like, oh, he's kind of on the fence there. I've got to keep the people happy. And then, number four, he seems to be henpecked by his new wife, right? And he has to keep her happy, too. Um, so he wanted this woman, and now he's got her. But she seems to be running the show a little bit, as we see in this story. Uh, and she has it out for John, too. So, okay. So he killed John, basically, to please his new wife and to save face, because he said in front of all the guests, oh, yeah, anything you want, right? Um, and then he feels guilty about the whole mess. And how do we know he feels guilty? We know he feels guilty because when he hears at the very beginning of the chapter about this amazing Jesus teaching and healing, his knee-jerk response is, this is John the Baptist, right? He has been raised from the dead, and that is why these powers are at work in him, right? Which is just a ridiculous thing to think, right? They were cousins. I mean, how could he be John the Baptist when Jesus was already alive, when John the Baptist was alive? It just doesn't make any sense. But that is the power of his guilt. So two things are juxtaposed in this chapter of Matthew. And one is guilt and its consequences. That's where we start with Harold. And then juxtaposed against Jesus. Who is he? Who is he really? Is he John the Baptist? Right. Who is he? Why has he come? What does it mean for our lives and for the guilt we all carry around? Okay. So first, let's look at guilt and its consequences. So John the Baptist came to Herod with word that he was living in violation of God's laws. And Herod learned the truth of what Paul says in Romans 7, where he says, Paul says, if it had not been for the law, I should not have known sin. I should not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet, right? What John brought was the awareness. Awareness of what is right brings these feelings of guilt and condemnation to Herod. So we, we only become aware of guilt when someone brings it to our attention, and it could be God, it could be the Bible, it could be someone around us, brings it to our attention that, oh, you have done something wrong, right? I have a 19-year-old daughter who, actually all three of them now, love to bring it to my attention when I have done something wrong, right? And after a while, it starts, the effect starts to wear off, where I'm just like, I can't wait till you have kids! And that's sort of ridiculous, which, you know, doesn't explain my sin, but whatever. It kind of keeps them at bay. Um, so awareness of what is right brings these feelings of guilt. And then awareness leads to a choice. You can change your ways or just keep feeling guilty, right? 
Um, sometimes what's done is done. And usually the things we feel guilty about, uh, but usually the things we feel guilty about can still be remedied, right? If I was a, um, an angry yeller when the kids were little, now that they're all not biting at my heels and um, needing their diapers changed, I can think, all right, do I need to keep responding that way when that same pressure is still on me? Do I need to keep responding in that same way? Can I, can I, with God's help, can I change my ways or do I need to keep feeling guilty about this? Um, if I, can I do the hard work of changing my ways? Um, I got in a little argument with my uh, niece on the day before we left and she got a little mad at me and so then we were gonna go for a nice family walk and I thought, oh, I cannot leave this like this. So I went and I said, I'm sorry. You know, I, I didn't express myself well. And, and she forgave me. They're not Christians, but she, you know, she forgave me. What, what else can you do when your aunt, your middle-aged aunt comes and says, I'm sorry. I, I didn't handle that well. She forgave me. And, you know, so, but it takes that little, that little push, right? To be like, well, I'm the adult. I should be right, right? But it's just like, you know what? You didn't behave your best. Say you're sorry. So I went and I said I was sorry. So we can we can do the hard thing or we can do the easier thing and just feel guilty about it. So um, too often, like Herod, we just feel guilty about a certain sin, but it's too appealing to stop or it's too comfortable or it's too hard to do otherwise, right? So we continue, but with guilt. We continue with guilt. I know I shouldn't do this, Jesus, but I don't care, right? We do a lot of that. Okay. And continuing with guilt leads to collateral damage. So Herod finds himself in a horrible bind. He can't admit he's made a bad decision by marrying Herodias, because that would mean putting her away, right? So he, asks, he has to act like she's a great gal. Like, yeah, I made the right choice, right? Even when she demands that he become John's murderer, right? Um, when's the last time your spouse asked you to murder somebody? Um, so John becomes the collateral damage of Herod's and Herodias's sin, right? He's the collateral damage. Um, Herodias's daughter, Salome, she's not named in, this, in uh, Matthew, but her name's Salome, she becomes collateral damage um, as her mother manipulates her into becoming an accessory to this murder, right? When's the last time your mother asked you to have somebody murdered? Um, all of jo John's disciples all become collateral damage um, as they lose their leader and their friend. And when we continue in a sin, uh, collateral damage in our life might be damaged relationships. Um, we get mad or we avoid the people who try to correct us or who we feel guilty about. Um, or collateral damage might be damage to ourselves, uh, physically or mentally. That substance, that habit takes its toll on us, right? So there's plenty of damage when we choose to continue with guilt. And then finally, guilt makes us afraid of God and makes God unrecognizable to us. When Herod has gone down this road, his first reaction to hearing about Jesus isn't, <gasps> woo, it's fear. His first reaction to hearing about Jesus is irrational fear. <gasps> Jesus must be John, right? John the condemner, John the one I murdered. It's him, he's come back. Which is, like I said, this is ridiculous. This is a ridiculous thing. Um, if Jesus were John raised from the dead, then who was in Jesus' body before John got there, right? Um, 
But guilt warps us and warps our view of God. Of course God must be angry. Of course God must be out to get me and doing strange things in order to get at me, right? Um, our guilt makes us see God through fear-colored glasses. And we assume God looks like condemnation and punishment and judgment. We, we put on our fear-colored glasses when we feel guilty. Okay, that is the first part of the chapter, the nightmare that Herod has been living. But then disciple, John's disciples come, and they get the body, and they go and tell his cousin Jesus. So we'll keep going. This is in verse 13. Now when Jesus heard this, heard that his cousin was dead, he withdrew from there in a boat to a lonely place apart. But when the crowds heard of it, they followed him on foot from the town. As he went ashore, he saw a great throng, and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. When it was evening, his disciples came to him and said, Woo, this is a lonely place, and the day is now over. Send everybody away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. Jesus said, they don't need to go away. You give them something to eat. They said to him, we only have five loaves and two fish. And he said, bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and blessed and broke and gave the loaves to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of the broken pieces left over. And those who ate were about 5,000 men besides women and children. Okay, so Herod expects condemnation and punishment and judgment from God, and he imagines that Jesus will be the instrument of it. But condemnation and punishment and judgment of Herod are not Jesus' response. Um, you remember when John was first arrested in Matthew 4, Jesus saw that as the moment to sort of uh, pick up John's banner, as if he'd fallen in battle, right? Pick up his banner. And you'll remember that that is when he launched his ministry, and he started with John's line, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's like he picked up the exact same banner and said, okay, I've got to take it from here, and I'm going to pick up right where John left off. Um, so is this another reason that Herod expected Jesus to pick up where John left off, right? Is Jesus now going to say, okay, you killed my cousin, but I want to tell you that Herodias, being with Herodias is wrong, right? This is what Herod is expecting, more of the same. But no, Jesus in this instance withdraws alone to grieve and to think, um, to grieve the loss of his cousin and to think about how John's death is a foreshadowing of his own death. You know, John faced imprisonment and then death, not because he did anything wrong, but because he angered the people in power, right? Jesus knew the same things were going to happen to him, not because he did anything wrong, but because he angered the people in power. And all too often, when we feel guilty, like Herod, we think about God being angry, but we don't think about him being grieved. We don't think about him being grieved. So the first thing we see is that Jesus is grieved by sin and its consequences. You know, um, when wrongs are done against us or against our loved ones, we feel rage, we feel desire for revenge. But look at Jesus in this instance, right? Knowing that he is going to be the one who has to put everything right. 
he's going to be the one who has to absorb all the rage and all the blame of the world. He feels grief. Jesus feels grief. He is grieved by sin because he knows what it will lead to and what it will cost. Um, number two, where he feels, he could feel rage, he could feel despair, but instead he feels compassion. Um, his cousin is dead, and it's somebody else's fault, and Jesus knows the same thing is going to happen to him. But when the stupid crowd, the hordes that will not leave him alone, and they always want something from him, that is us, right? Us. I think about my prayers over the last, oh, what, year? I, I'm always hounding that guy. I am hounding. I'm following him everywhere. I'm begging. I'm pleading. I'm harassing him. I am this I am this crowd. Jesus just wants to go and cry a little bit over his cousin, but I'm like, oh, excuse me, I have this big laundry list of things I really need you to take care of, Jesus. I'm desperate. Please, please. I am the crowd here. We are the crowd. We will not leave him alone. We will not give him a moment to himself. Um, because we always want something from him. We always need something from him. This crowd, we follow him again, and he doesn't blow up. What did I do when I had three little children who everybody wanted something? I blew up, right? Occasionally, I'd, be, I'd try to triage, but more often, I blew up and then triaged, right? But Jesus skips the blowing up at us. He skips the blowing up. He feels compassion. Um, he thinks, what fear, what desperation must drive you? that you would run after me without even packing a lunch, right? Or planning ahead. You just grab the kids, and there he is, and he's the only one who can help us follow him, right? Um, like I was saying, it's been a very rough time. Recently, I was praying with a friend who was going through a possibly even rougher time, and, um, and I understood this passage like never before. We were praying together, and it's like we were praying, you know, Jesus, sometimes... Things in life are so hard, they are so hopeless, they are so impossible, we have nowhere else to go. We don't have anywhere else to go. We don't have anywhere else to turn. Help us. If you can't help us, there's nobody, there's nothing. It's the end, right? There's nothing else we can turn to. Only you, like Peter says to him later, only you have the words of eternal life. Everything else has failed us. It is you or nothing, Jesus. If you haven't ever been at a point like that in your life, don't worry, it's coming, right? <laughs> Everything else has given way, right? The house on the sand has collapsed. The staff we were leaning on has pierced our hand. All those images in the Bible. It's all happened, Jesus. Only you can help us. Help us, help us, help us, help us. Um, and the good news is Jesus feels compassion, right? He wants to help us. He wants to provide for our needs. And he can because he is enough. This is what this whole feeding of the 5,000 is, is about. He has compassion. He wants to meet our needs. And he can because he is enough. Um, you know, how many of our sins spring from some spoken or unspoken need that we are trying to fill ourselves? Scott and I were watching this movie last night. We didn't finish. It was... Um, Kind of horrific. It's called. It was a documentary called Generation Wealth. Anybody seen that? Oh, it's horrific. Um, and it, she just kind of goes around the world and talks about um, the desire for money, the desire for fame, and how it's kind of be become this big thing. And anyways, 
there are very, very disturbing and sad stories in there about people um, having needs that they are just pouring stuff down, pouring stuff down that ditch and hoping it will fill up and it's not filling up. Um, terrible, very sad stories. So look at Herod, he wants love, right? He went looking for it in the wrong place, that's for sure. He wants approval, and to get it, he will sacrifice his conscience, right? And are we really that different in our sins? We want relief, we want comfort, we want love, we want approval, and we want it now. And we don't really care what it costs. We will do anything, right? We will do anything. Jesus says, stop a second, stop a second. Look around. Here we are together. Here we are together. That little bit of nothing you have in your hand, those five loaves, the two fish, which you know can't possibly feed your hunger and certainly isn't going to feed anybody else's, right? It's not enough. He says, it is enough because we are together. You are with me, and I will make it enough. I will make it more than enough. I will make it an abundance. And that's what he does, right? He makes it enough. Everyone ate and was satisfied. Everyone was satisfied. Not everyone had post-Christmas Thanksgiving food baby belly, right? But everyone was satisfied. He met their needs. Um, and they were satisfied enough that later he could dismiss the crowd. And they felt enough peace that they didn't have to cling to him as he crossed, you know, the Sea of Galilee. They could say, okay, okay, I have, I have enough. You met my needs and you gave me peace and I can go now. Um, so it doesn't mean it's easy. He did not send everybody home with a year's supply, right? They would need food again shortly, in a few hours. Um, they would need direction again soon. And the question is, would they then remember who did the providing? Tomorrow we will still have our desperate illnesses, our broken relationships, our besetting sins. Will we remember who provides? Will we remember who is enough? Who can see us through one more day, one more night, one more hour? Will we remember? Jesus says, remember that time when I was enough and I met your needs and I gave you peace. Will you remember that? Because it's going to come back. Will you remember? Um, the answer is sometimes. Sometimes we remember. Sometimes we forget. Sometimes we believe. Sometimes we're afraid. Sometimes we hope. Sometimes we don't have any hope at all. Um, and God understands. He has compassion on us. We know this because of how Jesus responded when those around him behaved like we behave. Right? He, that's how he responded. 5,000 men witnessed the miracle of the loaves and fishes, possibly another few thousand women and children, depending on how many were married with families, um, and 12 disciples. Right? They all saw this happen. Jesus was enough. So Jesus sends his disciples on ahead across the Sea of Galilee, and he finally, finally, finally gets a little time to himself, right? To grieve his dead cousin, to talk to and listen to his father in heaven. And it says, in the fourth watch of the night, so just before dawn, he prayed the whole rest of the night. In the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified. They freaked out, of course, saying, it's a ghost! And they cried out for fear, but immediately he spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I, have no fear. Um, note, they had just seen a miracle like no other, right? 
and they were on the sea because they were obeying his instructions. He said, get in the boat, cross over, I'll join you later. So that is, they were riding a spiritual high, and they were in the dead center of God's will for their life. So what was there to be afraid of? And yet they were terrified, right? We can be riding a spiritual high one second, we can be doing exactly what God has called us to do, and it is no shield from fear. Um, they were afraid. You know, everything went out the window. But Jesus doesn't say, like I would say, what is wrong with you people? Right? Those words, he does not say, what is wrong with you people? What does the Messiah got to do to earn a little trust and faith around here? Right? He doesn't say that. You know, with disciples like you, who needs unbelievers? Right? None of that comes out of his mouth. Again, he has compassion. Um, he, you know, and, and he isn't even mischievous with them, you know, like, ooh, <laughs> before he says, I'm just kidding, it's me, right? <laughs> he doesn't even do that to them. He just says, immediately, don't be afraid. It's me. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. Don't be afraid. Um, he has compassion. He understands, thank God, that when you are just a ragged little bit of dust and ashes, the world is a scary place, Right? That's all we are, and the world is a scary place. And he says, take heart. It is I. Have no fear. And on our best days, we're Peter, right? We, we, want, we say, oh, it's Jesus. Okay, okay, now I'm going to do it. I am going to do that big thing to show you how much I love you and trust you and have faith in you, even though I didn't a second ago, but now I do, right? We want to show God. We want to make the grand gesture. And so uh, verses 28 to 31. Very famous. We love Peter. Peter answered him, Lord, if it's you, bid me come to you on the water. He said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink. He cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and caught him, saying to him, oh, man of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. Um, if you watch a lot of movies or read a lot of books, you know that stories follow a pattern. You just have to wait for things to hit absolute rock bottom for the character, and then you know, if it's a good story, that there's going to be some kind of redemptive arc, right? The protagonist is going to pull through, or he doesn't, but hope goes on because of Jesus or, or this other character, right? Or the bad guy gets caught and gets punished. The guy gets the girl. So um, when Scott and I are watching a movie, I always like to pick the most depressing moment in the movie and say, the end, right? Because we laugh about what a horrible movie that would be. You know, the guy becomes an alcoholic and then that's the end. <laughs> it's a horrible movie. Um, so, you know, what is Peter thinking? Peter's not thinking, right? That in this moment of glorious faith and courage when Jesus has called for him to come, that he would feel the water beneath his feet start to give way, and shoop, the end. <laughs> That's the end of Peter, right? While Jesus is like, where you go, right? That would be a stupid story, right? That's not how it works. Jesus doesn't even torture him a bit, like the mischievous older brother, right? Just to see if, like, I'll get him on the second, like, right? He didn't even do that. He just... Saves him. Um, this is a meaningful story to me because my father, who my mother divorced a long time ago, 
he had this brilliant idea when we were very little that the way a child should learn to swim is you throw them in the pool, right? And then swimming will just naturally happen. And it didn't naturally happen, and then it'd be irritated that it didn't naturally happen, and I have to go um, be gotten out of the pool flailing. I think I was probably four. Um, anyways, he also, the first movie he ever took us to was Jaws. So there's a theme here, right? So when did Jaws come out? I was like five. So anyway, um, so yeah, what was Peter thinking? That Jesus was just going to, bye, Peter. Um, so yeah, but it doesn't happen obviously. So maybe you've been in a scary situation where you felt like you were called into it. You were called to make this move, take this job, um, reach out to this person, um, make this change, get some help for something. Um, but when you get there, you feel like you're going down with the ship, right? And you're like, Jesus, Meanwhile, I'm like, I'm like one, two, you know, this is the end of me. Um, now, the interesting thing is Peter was not rescued and immediately turned into Peter, the wonder water walker, right? This didn't become his thing he could dine out on where he could check this out, right? Where he could walk on the water. Um, as far as we know, that was the end of those kinds of attempts. He doesn't mention that sort of thing again. He got back into the boat, amazed and embarrassed a little bit, um, elated, but also sort of downcast, that you know, in the middle of a big victory is a little kernel of failure, right? Or vice versa. Um, Jesus did not rescue that particular situation, per se, but he gave it to Peter so that Peter would eventually become who he was created to be. So, meaning when we cry out to God in a certain situation, um, we cry out for a certain kind of rescue. You know, get me back in the boat. I don't like drowning here. But God may have a longer range plan for us. And we hate those longer range plans. We really do. Um, you know, that the, the, me helping you here immediately or slowly is not so that you can become, you know, this, that, and the other. It's because I want to get you where I want you to go. So the rescues may not come in the timing we want. They may not look like that immediate hand the second we cry out, but it has a purpose. The timing and the manner of rescue have a purpose. Okay, so number four, we are creatures of the moment, motivated by the fears and hopes and pressures of the moment, but Jesus is thinking eternally. Um, and I just kind of want to say, you know, this new year, if you are haunted by guilt, or you keep feeding that sin monster inside of you, uh, doing damage to others and ourselves and fearing or avoiding God because we think he must be angry. Or um, I just pray that, you know, he would open our eyes and we could see the real him, see the real Jesus, see that he actually is grieved by the consequences of our sin. But even though he is grieved, he is still compassionate when we cry out. Poor, helpless little bags of ash that we are, right? He feels compassion on us. He wants to help us. He wants to meet our needs, needs, and show us that he is enough, right? When we sit down together with him, even if we're in a panic, he wants us to see that he is enough. 
in this day and in this hour. Um, and he knows our fears of the moment, right? He knew Peter was afraid. He knew that his friends were afraid. But he's always looking longer range for our eternal good. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you that your promises are new every morning. Thank you, Lord, that whatever baggage we have brought with us this morning, whatever sin, whatever guilt, whatever fear, whatever hope or despair, whatever we've got this morning, Lord, we bring it to you, our little loaves and fishes, and we ask, Father, that you would make your presence enough in our lives, that you would give us your peace, that, Lord, the situations where we are crying out to you, help us know and trust, Lord, that you are watching us with compassion, that you have your eye on us, that you have something in mind for us, Father. Help us to trust even when it feels like we're drowning. Help us to trust even when it, fear can be overwhelming, Lord, and it's all we can think about. I pray, Lord, help us have no fear because it is you. And you are enough. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.